Hello! You're listening to Midwest's Best. In this episode, Megan talks rocks and clarifies grumpy old men's set details. Hannah shares another weird field trip and confronts her own mortality. And Alyssa coins a new insult while discussing ice fishing. So, yeah, today we're going to be talking about leisure sports in the wintertime because it's cold and it's awful and maybe you don't want to do anything, but you have to do something. You can't just give up. This turned into a PSA and I'm sorry. About seasonal affective disorder. We know you haven't seen the sun in a month, but please, you'll get through it. It's almost the solstice. It was sunny today and serious. People were just like wandering around town like they hadn't seen the sun in weeks. Like Just like, it's almost 40. It's glorious. I left work yesterday and some of the snow was melting, so there's liquid water. I literally stopped in my tracks because it took my brain a second to figure out why there's a puddle. Like, I haven't seen liquid water outside for so long. <laughs> I'm just like, like, is it's it not been melted? What is this? <laughs> so rather than having to bust out the sun lamp, just bust yourself outside. <laughs> I so, like that. That's smooth. <laughs> not joking about seasonal affect disorder like if you are feeling really down in the winter time getting up and being active is a great way to kind of combat that so we decided we were going to look at some of the maybe entry level sports we'll say like these aren't going to be super time intensive or like huge workouts but still get you up get you moving uh i think i'm going to go through mine first and it's curling you may know curling as the sport that once every four years, your dad turns on the Winter Olympics, cracks a beer, and says, I bet I could do that. <laughs> do you like my little Uper accent there? Yes. I was like practicing it. <laughs> your dad's voice wouldn't get more high-pitched, but you get the idea. <laughs> there are just so many lovely little quirks about curling. It's just kind of a ridiculous game. It's super accessible, which is really nice. But in professional realms, it's referred to as the roaring game. Because the stone, like oh, the lion stone roar, slides it. Yeah, the noise it makes as it slides across the ice sounds like a dull roar. Oh, sure. Um. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, totally. From all the curling matches you've been at, you know exactly. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. It totally sounds like a roar. So, I mean, when you're watching it on TV, you don't really get that sensation. You don't hear the but, roar. Um, they should add that in. Yeah. They should put a little microphone on the rock to get you closer to the action. Next Olympics, GoPros on the curling stones. <laughs> that would actually be really great. But they would have to account for it because, not and not just at the Olympic level, but if you're in any sort of curling competition, each rock or stone weighs 44 pounds. They don't look that big, but they're made of pure granite. And they're a special granite that comes right from Scotland, where the game originated. And so they're 44 pounds, and you're going to throw it about 20 times per competition because there's 10... They're called ends, but ten rounds. So you gotta have a little bit of arm strength. Does the granite have to come from Scotland? I mean, it doesn't have to, but to be a real, like, official curling stone, like, the ones used in the Olympics come from Scotland. It's a very specific, somewhat rare type of granite. This just seems like they have a monopoly on curling stones, and... Well, they invented it, so they get the monopoly, okay? (laughs) They invented it in the 16th century. They make up the rules and they were like, well, the rocks have to come from Scotland. That's one of the rules. 
Otherwise, we're taking it back, and you don't have to curl yes, Otherwise, no one can play this, and you have to come up with another name for it. We talked about the rock. Now, the object of the game is to take the rock, and you're throwing it towards a series of circles. And it's kind of like darts, but, like, they have really cute names for it. So the series of circles is called the house, and the target in the middle is called the button. So you're trying to hit the button. <laughs> So again, like it's kind of like darts, except you're throwing a dart that's the weight of like a four-year-old and you're hurling them across a sheet of ice. Just to pretend you're just pushing that four-year-old across the ice. Just get yeah. away. I'm sure there's a lot of people who like imagine pushing their four-year-old across the ice. <laughs> we won't go into that. But unlike darts, um, the other team can try and knock your stone out of the position and get their stone closer to the button. And there's four people on each team, and each person gets to throw twice. So there's going to be a total of 16 stones at the end of each round. Like, if I get my rock closest to the button, I get a point. But if Alyssa throws, and I have three rocks closer to the, but closer to the button than Alyssa does, I get three points. So this, there's a little bit more to the scoring than you might think. You can also get a perfect score where, like, all of my rocks would be closer than all of Alyssa's rocks. <laughs> Do you want to guess what a perfect game is called? Or a perfect end? Well, wait, so would that be eight eight points? Because you said 16 to stones yeah. total. I get so... eight. I get okay. 18 points. Or, or I eight. get eight points. Eight. Okay. What a, a perfect game is called? It's a perfect end because you would have ten ends in a game. It's called a snowman, <laughs> and I couldn't find a, I could not find why, but I didn't really look that hard because I was like, I just want this to be true. <laughs> I saw it on two websites. I was like, that's good enough. That's, that's verifying my facts. Well, it's like in bowling, is it if you get three strikes in a row, it's a turkey. turkey. Or, yeah. So yeah. And what does what do turkeys have to do with bowling? Because you used to get a free turkey when you pulled a perfect game. What? Well, that's not a perfect game. A turkey is just three strikes. Or that's, I mean, that's, uh, whatever. No, I think it, maybe it was a perfect <laughs> Whatever. No, you used to, there was something where you used to get a turkey. That's, I'm telling you, that was a thing. You well, used to be able to get a turkey. I tried to make Megan feel better about not needing to have a direct connection. But <laughs> no, I, I want to know, why snowman? <laughs> no one will ever know. You'll have to go back to 16th century Scotland and ask. <laughs> so anyway. We have our we have our snowman, and <laughs> now it's your turn to throw the stone. It's a new it's a new end, <laughs> and you think it would be like beanbags or something where you just kind of throw it and you hope for the best. But this isn't ice like a hockey rink or skating ice. It's intentionally rough, and this is where the guys with the brooms come in, <laughs> uh, because if you've ever watched curling. It's like one person is sliding the stone along and then people just sweeping angrily in front of him or her. So they, they're just called the, the sweepers. They just use brooms. But the whole point is they melt the ice fractionally so they can control the speed of the rock as it slides. And they can kind of direct it, you know, if you're trying to hit another opponent's stone or if you're trying to get to the button. So you don't over, if you think you're going to overshoot, they stop sweeping so it slows down. So there's a little bit of science to it. 
So it's a lot more than just like, I think a lot of people look at it and they're like, it's a lazy man's game. You're just like playing on the ice. It's it's the but... bowling of winter sports. <laughs> yes, yes, there is some strategy. <laughs> it's also comparable to something you'll find in many bars in the Midwest is when you play shuffleboard, the mini version. Oh, yeah. yeah but even the full size, it's kind of the same concept as that. Yeah, it's really, it's, that's what I kept thinking too, is like, oh, it's kind of like shuffleboard except... You do, you get to control the rock a little bit longer. Like shuffleboard, you kind of stand in one spot and hope for the best mm -hmm. when you shoot. This, you have a little more control. There's a little more strategy mm -hmm. to it. So it started in about the 16th century. Um, around the 1800s is when some of the official rules started developing. And that's also when it started transitioning outside of Scotland and Europe and came to North America. And of course, it picked up in the Midwest right away because these were people who had a lot of ice and a lot of rocks. <laughs> and like brooms were easy to come up with too. So it was an easy game for anybody to play. Um, and to this day, Minnesota and Wisconsin fight for the title of like the nation's curling capital, <laughs> among, among other things. But <laughs> And it's interesting because even in the most recent Winter Olympics, when they were doing the trials in 2017, um, there were eight teams competing to get those spots. Six of them were had team captains that were either from Wisconsin or Minnesota. So there's definitely a lot of heritage for the game in the upper Midwest. Those two states also have the largest curling clubs in the country, and they have more than any other state. So Wisconsin has 28 clubs Minnesota has 23, and then the next high highest are Massachusetts and New York, and those are both tied at 11. <laughs> so this is very much like a Midwest sport. <laughs> My stepdad is, for the past few years, has been doing a senior curling week <laughs> with a bunch nice. of other old folks, basically. <laughs> so yeah, even, because uh, it is relatively easy in terms of like you know it's not like running or it's hard on your joints so you can get mm -hmm. older people yeah. still getting out there and being active with it as long mm -hmm. as they don't fall on the ice i guess would be my concern he's still pretty yeah. steady on his feet well <laughs> yeah i'm sure he is i'm thinking of like i guess how old <laughs> like there's no one out there on like a walker trying to push <laughs> but there should be i just imagine like myself being out there, like, if I was a sweeper, I would probably fall in front of the stone, <laughs> and I'm guessing that yeah. you don't want that to happen. I worked at a hockey rink in college, and once you figure it out, we were lifting huge sections of flooring on ice, and no one fell. You fall once, and then you kind of figure out how to get your balance <laughs> on a in a situation like that. And especially at the Olympic level, they, they've got this. You'd hope like, so. They probably have special shoes. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Okay. It wouldn't be my section if I didn't find some weird personal connection <laughs> to the topic. And I really had to work for this one, so hear me <laughs> out. I did find out a guy who graduated from my high school became the head athletic trainer for USA Curling. And now he's worked on the Olympics staff um, since 2006. He's done every Winter Olympics since then. Nice. I could theoretically get a hold of someone who understands curling <laughs> at a professional level, but even he is not a curler. He's just their athletic trainer. So it's kind of like a far reach, but, you know, that makes it it's relatable there. for people. Yes, yes. 
I was going to add too, the Olympics started featuring curling in 1924 and then immediately dropped it again. Oh, no. <laughs> it came back in 1932 and it was just kind of like on again, off again until 1998 and it adjoined the official program for men and women at the Nagano Olympics. But in that time, it was steadily gaining popularity in the U.S., again, primarily in Wisconsin and Madison. Uh, when I was younger, I remember for the Nintendo 64, my brother and I got, I think for Christmas, the, the, the Nintendo game of the Nagano Winter Olympics, and so it was just like, you uh -huh. had to choose your country to play as, uh -huh. and then they had like, you know, 12 or so different events that you could do, and one of the, one of the sports that you could play was curling. <laughs> Were you good at it? Virtually? Uh, virtually, it was kind of hard, <laughs> virtually, because it, like, involved mashing buttons. Like, you had to, like, line up your stone and As throw it. As any good game of that era did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you, so you had to, like, line up your stone, throw it, like, to, you know, figure out how, like, fast you wanted to send it, and then, like, mash it's the buttons. called the rock, Alyssa. Whatever. Be respectful. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure it's, you called it a stone. It's a rock <laughs> made of Scottish granite. I just don't understand what's so special about the Scottish granite that we have to use it. <laughs> I don't know, but it was on the Olympic website and the Curling Federation website that it has to come from granite found in Scotland. It might just be that to get a 44-pound stone that is, like, the right size at this point, the only Okay, Hannah, the whatever. Density. We don't know. <laughs> the other thing I was thinking of, too, is I never thought about it, but there's actually a lot of Scottish people in certain parts of the Midwest, like, before the wave of ah. Scandinavians, like, where I grew up, there <laughs> are just a bunch of Scottish town names. Oh. So there's Melrose, yeah, that, Whitehall, that transition Bangor. I wasn't totally aware of. Like, I, I didn't really know why... I didn't know if Scottish was a huge population in the Midwest. I was just like, well, we have rocks and ice and brooms. Like, we have 10,000 lakes that are going to freeze over. Yeah. Red granite is the state zone of Wisconsin, so maybe we should petition them to start using Wisconsin granite as Ooh. curling stones. Possibly. At least, like, in our in-state competitions. And it'd be really pretty to have it would be. red yeah. granite. That's true. Start Although, a the more campaign. I think about it, this game started in the 16th century. They weren't playing on, like, nice ice rinks. They were just on ponds curling 44-pound stones. Like, how many people do you think died from this? <laughs> from drowning or hypothermia? Like, I'm guessing it started, like, two guys standing around being like, I bet I can slide this stone and hit that. And then they would slide it, and then the next guy would be like, I bet I can get mine closer. And then they just, like, sat there and kept sliding stones across. Yes. <laughs> and then one of them cracked the ice, and the other one was like, I win. <laughs> because the other one fell through and dead now. Yeah, poor William is dead. <laughs> I am the curling champion of Scotland. Well, I'm glad we could bring it back to death. <laughs> yes, yes. One of the themes of Midwest <laughs> facing mortality with a smile on your face and a rock in your hand, apparently. It sounds about right. And snowshoes on your feet, oh, Hannah. Good transition. <laughs> Those might actually help you not die. So yeah, snowshoeing, a little bit more utility than curling. What? Curling has entertained people for literally hundreds of years. Uh, snowshoes go back somewhere between like 4,000 to 6,000 years ago. 
Well, that's more impressive. <laughs> and that's only a best guess because snowshoes are made out of wood and hide, so they're hard to preserve, so they could go back further. But they may have even been the things that helped people deal with the Ice Age. Huh. Yeah, because you're traveling around and there's a lot of human migration going on at that point, and that would have really helped. You're out there hunting woolly mammoths and... <laughs> You don't want to get stuck in the snow while you're doing it. No, you don't. You do not want to make the mammoth <laughs> mad and then not be able to run away. That would be a tricky situation. Yeah, you fall through a snowbank, you get crushed, then you're dead. <laughs> you're really selling these snowshoes. I would like to see a snowshoe commercial that was like, <laughs> hey, you don't wear these, you're going to fall and you're going to get crushed and you're going to be dead. Buy my snowshoes. You know, like those, uh, like the info commercial with like all the lids falling out. Like, have you ever had this problem? Falling into a crevice. snowshoes without death no our goal was not talking about <laughs> child labor so i do have another field trip story for this one because apparently my entire education was just field trips <laughs> but i wasn't forced to do labor for anyone on this one so i was in ecology club all through high school and one of the things we got to do is we got to go up to this place that helps like track porcupines because there's a lot of porcupines in Wisconsin. That's a very specific thing to track, but okay. <laughs> the way you can help track porcupines is you have a couple different colors of spray paint. So you basically <laughs> snowshoe around and you tree a porcupine and just give them a big old stripe or an X or whatever so their quills are different colors. Remember how uh, we've, we've had this talk, Hannah, that we're pretty sure they're using you and your classmates to do jobs we, that no one else wants to. We didn't have to spray paint the porcupines. We just got to see the place just wanted to, do it. to, which almost makes it worse. Let's have high school students around while they're aggravating porcupines. <laughs> this can't go wrong at all. Yeah, they gave you snowshoes, but did they give you, like, face protection? Like. <laughs> Because if you had it treed, wouldn't you be looking up at it like, hey? I don't remember. I don't know why this is the gap in my memory. I don't remember if we actually saw one in the wild or not. We all they know how Homeward Bound went. room with us during orientation. So you were just like an incredibly ineffective ecology club. <laughs> that's fine. That's like, maybe that's what high school ecology clubs are meant to we be. We did other just things. Theory rather than practice. We did other things. <laughs> We did river cleanup, where we got to go canoeing. We did, I don't actually remember anything else that we did. It's just that she doesn't want to admit that the other ones were very clearly, like, unpaid labor. We did highway cleanup, actually. That's, like, building character. Yeah. So that, that was actually... So snowshoes. Yes, that was actually my second experience snowshoeing. The first time we did it was at Girl Scout camp, so that one is just very... Normal and nice. You weren't treeing porcupines with the Girl Scouts? No, dangerous animals. I was thinking, like, yeah, I know snowshoeing. I've been snowshoeing. I like it. But as, as I was trying to, like, look it up and find stuff about it, I realized I didn't really know that much about snowshoes at all. <laughs> there are, like, a bunch of different shapes, which I sort of knew, but maybe never thought about why. And it's mostly just depends on what you want to do with it. So if you're 
walking through normal snow, you can have a slightly smaller snowshoe, but if you're doing like really deep powdery stuff, you get the really giant ones that sometimes you see in movies where it's just like these four foot long yeah. snowshoes tramping around and there's different shapes that were developed by people who were hauling elk a lot. So you needed heavy load with the weight distributed in the back and it's just like, oh, there's actual okay. like design and why sometimes you just get the little ones that are not too much bigger than your feet yeah they used to be made out of basically just like big pieces of wood so you kind of just had snowboards <laughs> stuck to your feet uh and eventually they moved on to having the webbing that you'll see a lot if you've seen snowshoes but it looks like a tennis racket basically and that helps you distribute i the distinctly remember as a child taping <laughs> My parents' tennis rackets to my feet and trying to snowshoe and it not going very well okay, and getting in a lot of trouble. I'm sure. <laughs> well, they didn't play tennis that much. <laughs> Anymore, anyway. Hannah, do you know how people, how do you choose a pair of snowshoes that are is right for them? Like, is it based on shoe size? It's based on weight from what I saw, actually. So it's funny because <laughs> I was looking it up and it's like a basic reference chart for snowshoe sizing and it's how heavy are you? The heavier you are, the bigger snowshoes you need. Because it's all about displacing your weight. So as long as the shoes are bigger than your feet so you can stand in them, the rest is just about making sure that there's enough area. So it's the same thing as, like, if ice breaks while yep. you're curling, what you're supposed to do is yes. actually lay down mm -hmm. because you're distributing your weight so you don't have pressure points. Mm -hmm. And snowshoes just kind of do the same thing. Yeah, don't pick up a 44-pound <laughs> stone and toss it. Stand in one spot. But if you are going to, you probably want the Michigan style. So this is the one that's literally shaped like a tennis racket because it has a tail. I thought it... you were going to say it's literally shaped like Michigan. I was oh. like, that's a weird way to distribute <laughs> weight, but okay. <laughs> There's like an upper peninsula that just off the front. That's your two feet. And one is yeah. bigger than the other. You have to really, really sway as you're going here. But that one's credited to the Huron tribe. So again, kind of a Great Lakes area tribe. And these are the people I mentioned earlier about carrying like elk and buffalo. So you can carry heavy stuff. Some are good for like forested areas. So those are the bear paw or oval design that are kind of more basic. So a lot of it's just about how your weight is distributed, which isn't kind of the most exciting way to look at it. But if you like being outdoors and especially being active and still being able to kind of, you know, enjoy the natural beauty and really be the person who's out amongst the trees and there's the snow and there's the wildlife and you see the fox and the porcupine, snowshoeing's the way to go. I knew it would come back to porcupine. <laughs> Spray painting them. No, yes. just enjoying their natural beauty. You. You're adding to their natural beauty <laughs> with hot pink spray paint. Not making them, like, identifiable to predators at all. Yes! Yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of predators don't see color, so it's fine. <laughs> and also, that's yeah. what porcupine's quills are for. <laughs> so if anything, it's like, you know, the You're poisonous caterpillars. Like a really punk rock porcupine. <laughs> but yeah. Snowshoes and porcupines. Yes, Can and a lot of places. Sure. Uh, a lot of places will let you rent snowshoes. So, like in Milwaukee, there's the Urban Ecology Center, and you can actually rent a pair, and you can do that at a lot of different community centers. So it's also even more accessible than like curling, where you have to go to a club and find the right kind of ice, and you have to find people who can sweep for you as you throw the stone and things like that. It doesn't really take a lot to figure out. 
it is kind of hard to get up if you fall in snowshoes so again there's kind of a learning curve but once you get it figured out it's like really a pleasant way to kind of go take a walk a lot of people do it to just stay active in the winter and be able to get outside and actually enjoy the snow without feeling like you're tripping through these like knee-high snow drifts in the woods yeah because i mean curling is very much a team sport but this is definitely something that you could well maybe you shouldn't go out alone into the woods unless you really know where you're going be prepared (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah don't just like wander so the 2019 u.s national snowshoe championship is actually in lakewood resorts in cable wisconsin so again unsurprisingly midwest is home to a bunch of snowshoeing championships because it's kind of the ideal place for it and the other fun fact we didn't do fun facts a lot in this episode. Hey, everything about curling is fun, and I'm getting real tired of you two no, sassing MC did tell us about the button and the snowman. But you and didn't the say house. fun fact. It doesn't count unless you say fun fact. Okay. It's generally believed that snowshoes were created simultaneously but separately in both Europe and Asia. Oh. So a lot of people needing to walk in snow. Out of necessity, I'm sure. I'm wondering, like, how do you think they figured that out? Was it, like, they looked at someone who had, like, really big feet unproportional to the rest of their body that they're like, you are small, but your feet are big, and you do not fall through the snow. Or animals. Okay, that's a good point. They're literally snowshoe hairs, so there's one example. But also, like, lynxes and bobcats. When I was looking up snowshoes, some of the stuff would be lynxes have snowshoe feet. I just like to think that someone in the group had really large feet. Like, <laughs> like, like sideshow Bob-sized feet. This person invented both clown <laughs> shoes and snowshoes out of personal necessity, and then just was like, yeah, it's for weight distribution, not because of my freakishly large feet. But you, if you have a trail that you enjoy, it's a really good way to spend a day. So You know what's another good way to spend a day? Well, you can strap on those snowshoes and hike yourself out onto a lake, cut a hole in the lake. This is a really big lead into ice fishing. (laughs) And then you can start your ice fishing. (laughs) Hannah, do you want another crack at that intro or is that okay? I feel like this whole episode is just like, well, we th- we thought this would be a really good place to start, but it turns out winter sports are kind of boring. If you're not actively doing them, it's really boring to explain what it's curling just... is. I enjoyed explaining curly. Apparently you didn't enjoy listening. I don't understand. This is what my mother does to get out onto the lake. She puts on her snowshoes and walks out. No, I just felt like you were taking a really long time to get to ice fishing after I was like, hey, Alyssa. I was segueing. Do I have to do that again now? No. Because we can still have no. that and then have Megan mocking you. I yeah. That works. I'll cut out a lot of the stuff in the middle. That's probably for it the connects, best. So, so my, my dad is really big into ice fishing. He'll go out well before my mom is like ever ready to meet him out on the ice. But she's like, oh, I'll walk out later and join you. She has a pair of snowshoes. This is one of the reasons she wanted to get snowshoes. And actually, Hannah, the reason I asked you about sizing for snowshoes was because my mom asked my dad for a pair for Christmas. He was like, yeah, no, that'd be a great Christmas gift. I can get you a pair of snowshoes. How much do you weigh? And my mom just looked at him, and she was like, what? 
And he's like, well, I need to know how much you weigh. And she thought, like, he was being a big ass about it. <laughs> he was like, no, like, that is how the size is determined. It's by weight. And he had to, like, explain that to her. Because she didn't know. It's not something that a lot of people would think. You know, you, yeah. our first thought is footwear. It's by shoe size. So <laughs> he was, <laughs> he was, he, she thought he was being a jerk. He was just honestly, like, needing to know. Your poor dad. He's so considerate in all the wrong ways. <laughs> so ice fishing, for those that are not familiar with this great Midwest pastime, it does involve just going kind of exactly how it sounds. It's fishing, but on the ice. You find yourself a frozen lake or river. You're going to have to cut a hole into that, <laughs> that water, and then you can just uh, start fishing. Drop your line in and hope to catch something. The history of this goes back probably even earlier than Hannah's snowshoes because for survival in cold places, people would have to fish. And so you somehow would just break open the ice. And a lot of indigenous folks in Northern America would drop a wooden decoy fish into the hole and wait for other fish to come by to try and eat it. And then they would spear it. Oh. That's intense. Yeah. Of course, over time, this just kind of evolved into, like, fishing line. You can just drop a fishing line in to try and catch your fish. Uh, some people still try to do the whole spearing thing. I mean, people still do it. You can get permits for it. But yeah, there's still... This is about to go on to a tangent. Lots of people still go up north, and you can go spear, like, pike and bigger fish like that. That are easy. Don't think of, like, the little sunfish or something. Like, no, crappie, you're not, like, like fish. spear fishing for perch or something. Yeah, yeah. You're going for, like, musky yeah. and northern. So, Alyssa, are there certain types of fish that you're more likely to catch when ice fishing? Are there some that are just more active? What I did find was that the fish are most active in the beginning of the ice fishing season and then towards the end of the ice fishing season, which is also maybe not as good that that's when the ice is also at its most unstable state it is winter's most dangerous or or at least the most dangerous one we've talked about ice well ice fishing actually does have more injuries than traditional fishing there's a an npr article that talks about how if you're gonna go ice fishing to make sure to bring first aid you have your what you might expect your cuts your hook punctures but also muscle and bone injuries in part, I'm sure in the people. Cold for so long, or? Uh, no, I'm thinking it's probably and from people fall. falling on the ice, <laughs> which or something. Man, have, have you ever seen an ice auger <laughs> making yep. those holes? They can mess you yeah. up. It's not just like broken bones; it's like missing. Yeah, bones. burns. Burns is part of that too. I'll as I'll talk about um in a minute with ice shacks as people have heaters out that they can burn themselves on there. Also. The obvious, falling in the water, falling down your fishing hole. You don't want to do that. So do bring first aid if you are <laughs> heading out to go ice fishing because it can get a little extreme. Ice fishing, it's developed over time, obviously. A lot of people probably aren't really doing it with the, the spear anymore. Your ice fishing rod, it's going to be a lot smaller than your traditional fishing rod. In part because if you think about it, like your traditional fishing rod, you're casting and so you want like the extra length and everything on it to cast your line out really far. But ice fishing, you're just sitting over a small hole. So ice fishing rods tend to be about 24 to 36 inches only in length. So you kind of feel like a giant holding a little ice fishing rod. Because <laughs> you're not, yeah, you don't cast it. You just drop it into the hole. You can also, to ice fish, use something called tip-ups. Which this is, this is the best way to ice fish, in my opinion. 
So you, you drill your little hole in the ice, and then you set up a tip-up, which is like a little wooden box, and it has a spring connected to uh, the fishing line, and, the flag, and a little flag pops up. So when a fish bites on your line, a little flag goes up, and so you don't have to even be around that hole. You can just kind of see it from a distance if your, your little flag tip-up <laughs> goes up. Yeah, I have like multiple Rube Goldberg <laughs> machines <laughs> happening. Yep. And you can just be off. You fish. can just be off drinking your beer, hanging out with your friends, grumpy old men style in the ice fishing village. Well, they didn't. They didn't have pop ups. They had. Their, they had their shacks. What's you call the pole. The one guy has like his special ice fishing rod. Yeah, it's not unusual to have kind of an ice fishing village like that. But then you have your tip ups. Oh. And uh, okay. if you're really fancy, like my dad, you get light up tip-ups so that as it gets darker <laughs> you can still see where your tip-ups are this is the most extreme sports we discuss like there's lighting so as you you'd already kind of alluded to the auger uh megan which is just a large ice drill for those that don't know giant drill to make your ice hole um you can also use an ice saw or a chisel to cut into the ice um but that seems like a lot of work. Yeah. That seems like more work than the actual. Fishing. Yeah, the that's probably like the hardest part of ice fishing is getting is cutting into the ice. But then once you have your ice fishing hole, you know it's it's cold out there. Ice is forming on the lake, and so the longer you're out there, ice small amounts of ice are going to start to reform over your ice fishing hole. So you need to use what's called a skimmer, which is essentially a giant slotted spoon. And you just take your giant slotted spoon, dip it into your ice fishing hole to scoop out <laughs> your ice chunks and throw it back on. And I'm pretty sure when I was like really little, like I thought that was the fun thing to do was like to like scoop the ice chunks out with and throw them away. Well, and he probably was like, this is why you're coming along, baby <laughs> Alyssa. Although... You're gonna skip. I remember there being a lot of don't like to be careful around the hole and not to fall in the hole, and especially when you're like a little kid. It kind of sounds like ice fishing is made up as as you go. <laughs> hmm, my I, my hole is kind of freezing like over. Like, like this has been around for thousands of years. It's like, but we're still using slotted spoons. We stole out of the kitchen. <laughs> I do I do have to wonder like how many husbands have been yelled at by their wives in the Midwest for like having taken the kitchen slotted spoon out. Or just wives looking at their kitchen slotted spoon and like, hey, I can use this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it used to kind of be the person just sitting out, exposed to the elements, fishing over the ice fishing hole, but not anymore because ice fishing, just like camping, <laughs> has been glammed up and it is like to the extreme. Ooh. So glitching. you can get a glitch. I was going for glamping. What do you call it? Yeah. Glamorous glitching. ice fishing. Glamorous. Glitching. Glitching. Glishing. We don't want to share it on air because when we come up with it, we're going to like <laughs> trademark it. And yeah. open a glishing camp. <laughs> yes. These are the fanciest ice shanties and there's scented candles in them. <laughs> so your ice shack or shanty, fish house, shack, bob house, or ice hut, all terms that people use to refer to these, they can be simple, just like a pop-up, a small pop-up, maybe one made of canvas or something that you can easily transport on and off the ice. Or you can go go big and get like an actual structure made out of like wood or like other kind of siding. Right. Or something. And these can be, again, they can be small and portable or as big as, you know, kind of like a tiny home, more or less, with bunk beds, little stoves, 
TVs you can get in there, um, just completely decked out. And then you have like a little hole in your flooring of your shack to open up to where your ice hole is. Does your dad have like a super glamped out? Ice fishing hut. He does not. I mean, he's got the tip. ups Yeah, he's got so. the tip ups. He has. He has a portable. He has a really nice portable ice shack that he'll take on and off the ice. I would not be surprised if, when he retires, like he goes and he gets one with the sentence. Maybe that's the time to like get the nice permanent, more permanent structure. <laughs> Have you ever gone with him? Yeah, when I was younger, we used to go all the time at the cabin up north. And again, like, there really was, like, an ice fishing village that would be set up on the lake, and you just walk out and talk with who's ever out there because you've got your tip up so you don't need to sit over your hole. If you're gonna go ice fishing, I mean, one of the great pastimes, in the Midwest especially, is to bring some beers, but drink responsibly. And if you're gonna bring that or any other kind of beverage out there with you, do bring a cooler. And the reason for that is you might think, but it's cold, I can just stick my beverage in the snow on the, on the ice. Except it might freeze if it's really cold. So the cooler actually helps keep your beverage warm enough. Science. Yeah, and <laughs> according to Outside Online, if there's more than 18 inches of ice, you can safely set up a fire on the ice. I don't necessarily recommend <laughs> that because that sounds really dangerous to me, but they did have some steps as to how you can do that. I've seen people, you know, with like grills out on the ice making brats or frying up whatever fish they've caught. The world's largest charitable ice fishing competition is held uh, outside of Brainerd, Minnesota on Gull Lake. Charitable ice Charitable fishing? ice fishing Very competition. Specific. For this ice fishing competition on Gull Lake in Minnesota, over 30,000 holes are drilled into the ice. I feel like there's like 30,000 is enough that the, the lake should just be like done. cracked, done, you're all gone. Uh <laughs> There's a big festival held in Michigan on Houghton Lake, Michigan, and it's called Tip Up Town. And they have like things like a carnival, concerts, ice slide out all, all out on the lake. Um, it's known as the Bonnaroo of ice fishing. <laughs> yes. I am so glad one person called it that in an article <laughs> and then all their ice fishing buddies were like, what is Bonnaroo? So I think we should make that a Midwest is best, uh, put that on the list of festivals we need to attend. Tip up town. Bonnaroo or... Oh, I thought you were going to say... <laughs> I thought you were going to say shirts we need to make. And I was like, yeah. I mean, that too. I want a tip up town shirt. Tip up town. Probably if we're going to make a they... shirt, it should be something about ice holes because I have to stop myself from laughing every time. <laughs> <laughs> just so close. Is, is that like the new safe swear? We swore we weren't going to swear on this. Podcast, <laughs> so we just keep calling so we'll each other ice holes. Ice hole. <laughs> I love it. So that's uh that's ice fishing I guess really I mean there's not much more to say it is it's a great it's a great yeah. social thing to do well even as you were talking about like oh people have really like glamped it up now like it's not this miserable thing I do like every time I think of ice fishing I just think of grumpy old men <laughs> and even then that was the gosh late. 80s early 90s they were listening to records and like just hanging out with all their friends and having a beer every morning at 9 a.m and i was like that's the yep. life that's <laughs> that's the life to live while you're talking i did look up how many people lose cars for driving their trucks out the star tribune which is like one of the big minnesota newspapers talked about just on one lake Millax, which is a popular like touristy lake they are talking to a tow company that specializes in getting vehicles <laughs> out of ice, whether it's partially or fully submerged. <laughs> and it was written in the end of February of 2017, 
And they said that winter they had already pulled 15 vehicles out of the ice. In February, like, there's still ice fishing season left in February. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still freezing. Like, you got into early March sometimes at places, but... I sometimes, when I see, like, trucks out on the ice, I get a little nervous. Um, I mean, at least the lake that my parents are on, it's not a very deep lake, and so when it does freeze, it it freezes pretty easily. They're pretty safe, probably, with the truck out there, but it's still, like, my dad's always like, that's something I would do. I'd never drive my truck out there. He he takes the four-wheeler, the snowmobile... Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. So yeah, ice fishing, curling, snowshoeing, options to get up, get out. But not too much. Just kind of easing it. Most uh, goals for the new year tend to be health-related, and most people drop those within a couple weeks or so. We're telling you, ease into it. Baby steps. Step one, hey, you you made it out of the house. Good job, you. It's all you can hope for, just make sure your fish isn't full of mercury. Happy winter from Midwest is best. You will die alone. The darkness of the northern winter may have been reflected in the feeling of this episode, but we made it through, just like we'll make it through another long, cold winter in the Midwest. Thanks for listening. We'd also like to thank Cola, an artist from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for releasing music under Creative Commons licensing. You've heard their song, Till at Last, in our intro and right now. This podcast is also released under Creative Commons. Share and share alike. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Midwest is Best Show, as well as MidwestIsBestShow.wordpress.com. Episodes can be downloaded pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. Fast and slow, twirl.